This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Uh, well, please next, let, uh, let me introduce and welcome uh, Dr. Brandon Barker, who's an assistant professor of folklore and musicology at Indiana University. Brandon's published a lot in the areas of folklore, of music, children's play, as well as animals and folklore. But just a personal note, I first met Brandon on the Frisbee field many years ago uh, when he was a graduate student, PhD student. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I just recently read something of yours about chimpanzees, a book of yours, and I'd like to talk to you more about that science. And I said, well, I'm not really interested in the science as much anymore. I'm interested more in the sociology of the study of animals and cognition. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? And I explained to him what I was interested in. And he said, oh, you mean the folklore. <laughs> and I said, no, I think I mean the sociology. But all these years later now, I understand he was right. It was the folklore that I'm most interested in. Let's welcome Dr. Barker. Thank you, Danny. So I'm a folklorist, which means that I think of myself as a humanist who keeps a toe on the other side of the line in the universe of the scientists. But then again, if you speak the words narratives, story, and myth, three or seven times, folklorists might descend upon you like so many locusts. <laughs> I'm happy, actually thrilled, that my disciplinary colleague, Tim Tangerlini, is here with us, and he's going to present later today. But being, I believe, the original folklorist to present here at CARTA, let me quickly orient us with a definition. Folklore's most famous definition came to us from longtime University of Pennsylvania professor Dan Benamos. Sadly, Benamos passed earlier this year, but his elegant definition remains. Folklore is artistic communication in small groups. Now, I look to put a bit of heft to Dan's definition by recognizing that origins remain a pervasive question in people's artistic communications, which is to say, their stories. But quickly, preparing for today's talk, I poured through previous Carter speakers and sponsored publications. Notedly, I found myself enamored with Ajit Varkis and Pascal Gagnon's discussion of the matrix of comparative anthropogeny. More than 500 topics falling into 24 different domains of human knowledge, considered temporally across the past six million years. These scientists are truly intellectuals, I thought. They are not cowards, I thought. You see here Varki and Gagnon's early example of a complex network of uniquely human features sourced from MOCA's contributors. Inasmuch as today's symposium allows us to interface contemporary study of humans with MOCA's concerns, I detect compelling folkloristic overlaps. Consider the moral sense. Folklorists often study narratives by way of generic categorization. Think of the sayings, the proverbs, and the moral lessons that they carry. Think of the moralizing epimythiums that end our fables. We all recognize this story immediately. And my guess is that many of you may be thinking right now of the epimythium. Slow and steady, slow and steady wins the race. A little moral idea to the importance of persistence. 
I see organized food gathering. And I came from Indiana. It's spring. And I know that right now, individuals are foraging for the delicious moral mushrooms that have just come into season. Here is Vicki Dahlman as she appeared in a documentary made by Tom Mould and came out in 1998 with his partner, Brooke Barnett. Here, Vicki is pointing to the carved morel that rests atop of her walking stick. And she's explaining what we might call her folk theory of vision, which is to say, the more that I stare at the morel at the end of my walking stick, the easier it is for me to find the mushrooms in the rubbish of the forests. I think of tool making, and I travel mentally to the Black Patch area of Tennessee and Kentucky, where a type of dark-fired tobacco, which has been grown for 200 years in this place, is still being grown today. The delicate crop needs to be cultivated by hand. You see here a tobacco stick and a tobacco spike. Many of those sticks laying upon that wagon are still made by hand with fro and maw. Of course, it doesn't end there for folklorists because that very stick can be found on the wall at the local barbecue establishment, now displayed not as a tool, but as a kind of heritage-focused folk art. Of course, we recognize the art and the hyper-realism of the moral mushroom atop the stick. We recognize the art in the fable and its generic customs of providing a moral, of containing a story about anthropomorphized animals and in its contemporary space as a bedtime ritual, stories that are read to children. But narrative is our topic today, so let us linger in the black patch and head to Adams, Tennessee, a town of just over 600 people in northern middle Tennessee. Here, the dark fire tobacco cures on Bourne Farm. You see, Adams is a witch's town. As the legendary stories go, the bell witch, perhaps more accurately identified as a kind of disembodied poltergeist, haunted John Bell and his family beginning in 1817 until murdering the family's patriarch via poisoning in December of 1820. Furthering the entanglement of folklore and vernacular art forms, each year in October, the town puts on a play called Spirit, written by their local star, David Alford. The play depicts popular episodes from the legends dealing with the origins of the witch. There are two possibilities. Possibility A, the witch is a cursed, evil projection of an eccentric character named Kate Batts, whom John Bell Sr. treated unfairly in a business deal. Option B, the witch itself claimed to be a revenant, this disembodied being developed a voice, claimed to be a revenant from an ancient burial site, which the Bell family had disturbed in their move. She took up portions of their floorboards, only to have the witch reply, you fools, that was just a joke, I was tricking you, can't you see? So let me add a couple of fable-esque morals to this event. I've already ruined the punchline by going too far ahead. <laughs> but number one is never trust a witch. And number two is every search for origins has potential to turn into, there it is, a wild goose chase. <laughs> 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 
More to the point, it is clear that 20th century folklorist Thith Thompson sought to avoid wild goose chases in his study of international folk narratives when he developed his motif index in the middle of the 20th century. Unhappy with the overly Eurocentric, structurally restrictive tail-type indexes created at the turn of the 20th century, Thompson's motif index began the folkloristic endeavor of gathering up the collected narratives of the world and categorizing them in accordance with varying motifs. This quote gives us a glimpse into Thompson's thinking. Accordingly, if an attempt is made to reduce the traditional narrative material of the whole earth to order, as, for example, the scientists have done with the worldwide phenomena of biology, it must be by means of a classification of single motifs, those details out of which full-fledged narratives are composed. Ultimately, the printed version of Thompson's collection came to five books with an index, including 45,000 motifs and 23 top-level categories. There are basic concerns with the work we recognize. There's geographical lacuna, for example, in Arabia. Certain motifs appear more than once and or significantly overlap semantically. Unbalanced gender labels appear throughout the books. And in their print form, at least, they can be quite difficult to navigate. That said, upsides remain. It's always a pleasure for the folklorist whenever we go out into the world and find a motif in the wild. You see here my friend Brenda Moss, who runs Moss's Restaurant in Adams, Tennessee, and who truly does make the best pie for a 100-mile radius. She often tells the story of a ghost dog that she saw in the middle of the road. It had glowing eyes. It wasn't a bear. It wasn't quite a dog. And then it ran off into the woods. Now, to be clear, Brenda tells this story in the context of confessing to you that she doesn't really believe in the witch. But she can tell you this one time when she experienced this unexplainable event. Motifs arise out in the world, and we are continuing to make progress. For example, Hassan El Shami's A Motif Index of the Thousand and One Nights helped to fill in the geographical lacuna. And we continue to make process on accessing the data. In 2015, a group of folklorists from the Netherlands created a digitized index search tool, the Myrton Online Motif Finder, Momfer. Momfer is freely accessible and is capable of searching for specific terms, motifs, and related semantic themes, and its capability to match all limitized nouns and adjectives against a lexical word net. Here you see from that publication a depiction of the trees, the hierarchy that makes up the motif index. And finally, we do come to Thompson's A and B top-level categories, creation and ordering of human life, and creation of animal life. With the addition of A2600 through A2799, which contains motifs related to the origins of trees and plants and plant characteristics, we can safely say that the cross-cultural narratives collected as myths by Thompson present a telling preoccupation with the origin of all life forms. Let's look at a set of examples. Under the subcategory creation of animals, we find animals created by magic, creation of animals by a creator, animals created to serve man. Thompson's system also included information on language group and geographic area when available, uh, 
And even though the motif index doesn't include the narratives themselves, it is full of bibliographic information to help those who want to find them do so. Let's look at a specific example. A1226.1. Creator makes man out of butter first. It would not stand and melted. This particular version was collected in central India by the English pilot and anthropologist de Beauvoir-Stocks among the Lapcha people in Sikkim. It goes like this. In the beginning there was only sea, and the creator made two kinds of fish, the common kind and the serpent form. From the sea we believe a tortoise supports the world on it. The creator made the birds and animals, then he tried to make a form of man from butter. It melted. Had it only remained firm, we should have been very beautiful. Admittedly, in the context of anthropogeny, this entry into myth's origins, despite its inclusion of the cross-cultural myth theme, the world turtle, seems, from one perspective, a pleasurable tale and nothing more. But what of the more relevant and salient connections? Following Prometheus and the others, is any connection between mythical search for origins and a science of anthropogeny more clearly pronounced than that of fire? In fact, digging deeper into Thompson's motif index, we find that people of the world, when telling their mythical origin stories, do seem to be thinking along the same lines as scientists who seek historical, cultural, and even biological clues to the origin of our species. Now, this is not the first time I've come up against a good deal of science represented somehow, or at least reflected somehow, in the extant folkloric indexes. As a matter of fact, in 2021, Danny and I published a book called The Aesop's Fable Paradigm. Now, that book was obviously spurred forward by scientific studies based upon an Aesopian fable, The Crow in the Pitcher, in which the crow drops stones into a pitcher of water to lift the water level and take a drink in order to try and show, to scientifically prove that crows possess a higher order understanding of the causal properties of water displacement. I give you motif J101. (laughs) Alongside this particular motif, we found many, many others. For example, mental time travel, that is, the idea that ravens can plan for the future. I give you 143.0.1, especially raven as prophetic bird. We thought about crows who have sometimes been studied and birds who have sometimes been studied for their ability to recognize themselves in the mirror. And we thought about that particular set of scientific investigations right alongside 116.4. So I bring you to my first hypothesized cultural universal. Humans' propensity for art includes universally telling stories that involve anthropomorphized animals and plants and planets and gods, etc. Returning again to even this cursory observation of the reflection of science in the folkloric indexes in the context of anthropogeny, one wonders if we can offer up a second hypothesis. Human propensity for art includes universally telling stories that demonstrate an insatiable thirst for knowledge of origins. Now, here's a confession. I googled this a couple weeks ago, 
And I found many lay perspectives that agree with these two hypotheses. <laughs> it's not my job to prove the lay folk wrong. And as a matter of fact, when they may be right, I find it to be my job to amplify what they're saying. So let me begin my conclusion by quoting my dear colleague, Gregory Shrimp, who has also worked with Danny and myself. He is a folklorist and a mythologist. He studies the complex rhetorical situation of trying to communicate science to a popular audience. And what he finds is, the pressing need is for someone to tell us what science means and what we humans mean in a world informed and transformed by it, freed from the shackles and inescapable destiny imposed by myth. We nevertheless want to regain one part of what we think myth offered in the past, a coherent cosmic vision that helps us answer questions that we cannot stop asking. Who are we? How did we get here? Why? What is to be done? These very questions were basically presented to us at the beginning of this particular event. So from a folklorist, I would say the science of anthropogeny's task is clearly exceedingly complex. Carter's work is genuinely impressive. For humans, the desire for knowledge of origins is eternal, just as it is universal perhaps no less or more universal than art itself. Two quick optional conclusions. One, Carter's work is antonymically cutting edge and ancient. Two, you cannot spell Carter without art, communicated in small groups of scientists. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.